welcome to where the furniture isn't always the best, but them views, they are. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 13th floor where the furniture isn't always the best, but the views are amazing. I am your moderator, B. Jones, and I got my guys here, the BFBG. Faison, what's going on? What's up, man? Uh, Life is good. Uh, Yeah, it's Monday. I had a huge migraine earlier or last night around 4 o'clock in the morning. It woke me up. Um, But I am here. The day has progressed. I've gotten better and better every hour of the hour. Um, So I'm good, man. I'm real good. We can ask for it, man. Be better than we were the day before. In your case, the hour before. So we're good to go. Mm -hmm. DJ, what's happening, man? You playing in the dark? Are you coming over to the light? Hey, man, I, y'all can't, oh, we have an issue today? No, no, no. Oh, no, it was earlier. I was on earlier. It was light outside still. I guess it got dark. I ain't checked my surroundings. I apologize, sir. <laughs> no, nah, you good. You good. You good. What's happening? That's a little bit better. Oh, bless the highly favored, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You just finished the prayer circle and things, man. Yes, sir. It went well tonight. Um, Again, for anybody that knows, like, Monday nights, we do a, a Facebook Live with my church, Um, the executive pastor, myself. Um, Now we started. Back in March, we were just recapping. It's been like 12, 13 weeks now. I didn't realize it was that long. Um, just an opportunity to kind of dig deeper into some scripture. Anybody who needs prayer requests, just an opportunity to sit there and, and just go go in. Absolutely. Appreciate the dynamics, man. And last but certainly not least, our special guest tonight, we're doing um, what we call in the gut check. It's <laughs> yeah, one of a part two series, a two part series, and tonight we got Dr. Benjamin Young, a gastroenterologist. I think I said that right this Nicely time. Nicely done. Nicely done. <laughs> Hard word to roll off the tongue, man. man. Listen, I've been practicing that thing all day. <laughs> Dr. Benjamin Young, he's a partner in gastroenterologist at Associated Gastroenterology down in uh, Woodbridge, in Woodbridge, Virginia. Um, several publications, very accomplished uh, brother. Uh, several publications, including Abstract with the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Um, he has papers on health-related outcomes in acute pancreatitis uh, from a 2008 issue of a Journal of the Pancreas, a loving father, a model husband, and of course, Hurricane, baby. Yeah, Hurricanes <laughs> and the baby. What's going on, Dr. Ben? Uh, not much, man. Thank you. That's a, that's a beautiful introduction. <laughs> Glad you're here. Glad to have you with us, man. Uh, some of the things we're going to be talking about tonight, um, all dealing with your gut, your health, um, some, some st- statistics that are going to be kind of alarming, at least they were for me, uh, when it came to some of the issues and illnesses that we uh, deal with as an African-American society. Uh, so definitely stay tuned throughout the entire episode. Um, I want to kick it off with you, Dr. Ben, give you an opportunity to just talk about gastroenterology and how you ended up getting there, your path to that, because um, it's not something that I've heard of prior to BJ and Art and the guys kind of throwing it out there. Um, And so, you know, when you think of a physician, it's typically, you know, internal medicine, maybe cardiologist or surgeon, but never really thought about this gastroenterologist uh, field. So just give us your your take on it, how you got there and some, some of your experiences. Gotcha. So, as you pointed out, I went to the U. Uh, I graduated in 02. And when I was there, at that point, I had gone back and forth. I, I was thinking about being an uh, obstetrician gynecologist. Uh, that, yeah, exactly. That got lots of laughs every time. It's funny because <laughs> that, I was. That's um... how you knew Ben. That's, that's, everybody knew what Ben wanted to be. Back in the day, that's what we all knew. It's true. It's true. You know, it's. Uh, I was in love with the idea of delivering babies. Uh, you know, I, I said the same thing. 
Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was super cool, and you know, I, I think it's I think it's um, not just a coincidence that mm-hmm. I was also of the era of the Cosby Show. You know, mm-hmm. where you know the black doctor on TV was an obstetrician gynecologist. Uh, you know, there were some personal things in my family that kind of pushed me in that direction too. But actually, by the time I graduated from college, I wanted to be a pediatric surgeon because I've always loved kids and I kind of like the idea of you know helping to make them better. But interestingly. When I got to medical school, that's actually where everything changed. And so it was after my first year of med school and you just kind of going through all the different systems of the body. We learned about the digestive tract and I was like, it's pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened towards the end of that first year that I had a, a, a meeting with uh, who became my mentor, uh, a young man, his name was uh, Fritz Francois. And at the time, he, black guy, he was actually finishing up his training in gastroenterology. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met him through our Black and Latino Student Association uh, group. We had like a a get together. And we got a chance to meet some of the the trainees and the faculty there. And so this guy just, he, he could control the room. I mean, he would stand up and talk and like, I mean, a hush would fall over the crowd. It's like, he's talking. And, you know, it was funny because he was still in training, like he actually wasn't done training, but he just commanded that kind of authority and respect in the room because he was super smart and he was, you know, very articulate. He was homegrown. I went to NYU for medical school. He was homegrown through NYU. He went there for undergrad and for medical school and stayed there for all of his training. And, you know, everyone knew him. But what struck me about him was that he just embodied, I think, um, knowledge and again respect and he looked like me and that meant a lot and so I can remember looking at him and thinking I want to be this guy and I think that you know to talk just briefly about representation mm-hmm. it's so it's so important because you know in you know back at back in Miami you know we, we had a little crew and you know even if you were doing different things like you know UBS uh, we were you know really supportive of one another and all of our endeavors. And so you kind of grew up, you know, for those years that you were there, supported by the black community. And then we all kind of went our separate ways. And in some cases, it was jarring once you went to your next step, because I went to medical school where in my class of 161 people, there were two black guys. Mm -hmm. I was one of them. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it was, you stood out very easily. Mm -hmm. And I think to be in that kind of environment, and then actually see someone who looks like you, who is doing it. I mean, like holding it down and like really people are like totally um, in awe of his abilities. It really stood out to me. So I immediately kind of latched on to him. And um, by the end of my first year of medical school, because I sort of discovered the digestive tract and realized that I liked it. And I actually found this guy who just so happened to be training in gastroenterology. It was a perfect fit. And so really from there, uh, I continued a mentorship with him, which honestly continued for years. I still keep in touch with him. Um, but he is actually the reason that I got started with some of those abstracts and papers and, and meetings that you were talking about, because he showed me not just what it meant to be a gastroenterologist as far as taking care of people, mm-hmm. but also just understanding the science behind it and having an appreciation for it. So 
that's really how I got into it because definitely gastroenterology was not on my radar when I started med school. Uh, I might've stumbled across the word myself trying to say it before I started. Uh, but yeah, from there, it's just been a passion that I've had that really didn't waver after that pretty much for the first year of medical school, all the way up until when I finished all of my training, that was my goal. So let's see what got you there. What keeps you in gastroenterology? So, you know, it, uh, it's, it's, it's obviously a, a source of, of comedy because I'm, I'm a butt doctor. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just not really, you know, an, an elegant way to put that. And, uh, <laughs> and so a natural question is like, how on earth did you fall into this and why are you still here? But you know what it is, is that at least for me, it, it brings a lot of, of medicine together because you have to do kind of like you mentioned, I think that the more traditional doctor people think about is an internist, you know, someone who does internal medicine. You have to do inter internal medicine before you can do gastroenterology. Mm -hmm. So I did you know, an internal medicine residency and then I specialized within internal medicine to do gastroenterology. And so you're still an internist, but <clears throat> what's nice about gastroenterology, at least for me, is that I think that it's kind of a complement between internal medicine and surgery. Because with surgery, you tend to think of, okay, you work with your hands, you get instant gratification, you go in there, you fix the problem. And at least like on Grey's Anatomy, you kind of like, you know, you know, skate into the room, slow motion, hair blowing in the wind, you know, music's playing, and you save the day kind of thing. And so internists don't do that. But gastroenterologists kind of bridge the two. Because as much as I do internal medicine, I actually do work with my hands, I do procedures, and I go in and sometimes I am literally helping someone to stop bleeding. Um, and you know, so I, I'm, you get a chance to get that instant gratification that you get with surgery, even though you're an internist. And then I think what I also like about it is that it's not just children, it's not just adults, it's not just men, it's not just women, it's everybody. And so I really get a chance to work with a, a diverse group of people uh, in multiple stages of their lives from just brief issues that come and go to chronic diseases that last them the entirety of their lives. And uh, so I think that all of those things really make it attractive to me. Uh, and I get to joke about butts. So, you know. <laughs> for one this week, baby, the butt check and the gut check. <laughs> right. <laughs> Be fresh. What's happening, man? What did I step into? <laughs> give, give me a little bit more volume, baby. Just a little bit more volume. <clears throat> Oh, let's see. Is it the guy? There it is. There it is. We working better? Yeah, man. We got the breeze in the background and waves. Brother Ben, been too long. Way too long. How you doing, man? Man, same grind, same shine. We out here. <laughs> I see. I see you still the deep voice assassin. Listen, <clears throat> I, I drank my 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 uh my tea before the show started. I was trying to get it ready. Yes, sir. It's been my a long man. Day. It's been a long day, so it's not like it used to be. Now, catch me in the morning. Y'all y'all do like a six a.m. Hey, you know, you never know when we might turn up. I can't promise I'm going to be there, though. <laughs> <laughs> can't promise I'm going to be there either. <laughs> oh, man, Fresh, glad you could join us, man. Uh, Dr. Ben was just giving us um, just a backstory on, you know, what brought him into gastroenterology and, you know, his, uh, his passion for it um, and, and bringing a few different things together. Um, one of the things that we thought we were going to bring you on for and what Fresh and most of us are really interested in is um, 
this new, I guess, fairly new testing that they're doing, the microbiome, a microbiome, the gut test mm -hmm. to give you all the information on your bacteria and stuff yeah. that's in your gut and everything. And so, you know, we, a couple of us took the test, we got our results and everything. So they tell you all your do's and don'ts. And I mean, the first time I looked at this list and I'm like, bro, I can't eat oranges and, you know, all of these lovely fruits that I love to eat all the time, you know, asparagus is on the do not list, orange juice and stuff. So it's really a, a culture shock, but I do think there's a little, a good amount of validity there because I adjusted my diet, so to speak, to some of those things. And I've seen some, uh, some different results. And then, you know, when I stray away from the straight and narrow, uh, you know, I get those results as well. So kind of want your, uh, your feedback on the importance of understanding your, your gut, um, the, the microbiome that it is, and how we can best utilize these, um, these tests and things that are out there for us. Yeah. So <clears throat> this idea is, is definitely not new but relative to other parts of medicine, it's still in its infancy. Um, and so I think it was 2007, if I remember correctly, um, where the NIH actually sort of took a, a branch of the, the, the Human Genome Project and they kind of went to the Human Gut um, Microbiome Project. And so, and the reason for that was because they realized that there is a lot of, of diversity that's going on in the human body that's not accounted for just based on our genes. And so as much as, and that was the whole point of the Human Genome Project was to study the human body and the basis of human function based on DNA and uh, the genetic makeup. And yet again, what they realized was that there seems to be a lot more that's going on in the body that we can't account for just based on genes. And so in, in understanding that, uh, it kind of opened up a new world to us as to an understanding of how we as human beings live in concert with organisms, microorganisms. And so, I mean, we're literally covered and filled with trillions of, of microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, fungi. And we're really just kind of getting a better understanding of how they work. Um, and so with that being said, you know, there are some sort of general ideas that are very clear. So we know, for example, that the, you know, the basically the microorganisms, microorganisms that we have help to maintain our immune system. Uh, they help to maintain our digestive tract. They help with, you know, cardiovascular function. They help with uh, really lots of different things. And they maybe even have a, well, actually fairly clearly have a role with uh, development of cancer. So, you know, I think this is the reason why there are so many people who are interested in it. But what I would also say is that, again, it's kind of in its infancy in that the implications of these things are what we're still trying to figure out. And so that's why I think that um, one of the things I was actually saying to Art before is that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't dismiss necessarily the, the tests that you guys took, especially because I don't think that it really does you any harm to have some sort of guidance of what things you may want to consider eating or not. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if that information changes over time and it evolves over time. And it's just because we're still learning more. You know, there have been some, uh, I've seen some interesting um, comparisons because uh, Viome isn't the only uh, test that's available that gives you this kind of information. Uh, and actually there was a, a, a one guy, it was a, an article, one guy who tested both of them and uh, actually got completely different results. And like results that didn't even agree with each other. And, you know, I, I think that part of that is because, as I said, 
you know, there's a lot of diversity here, you know, and what's interesting is that science is even discovering that there's even diversity amongst what's normal. So you, for example, might have a complete, in fact, you do have a completely different set of microorganisms than all the other guys here. And yet that difference is not bad. That difference is just different and it can still promote a healthy life for you and a healthy life for the other guys, even though it's different. And so what that leads to is we're not even, we're not even at a point just yet where we can say what's, you know, what we should aspire to, if that makes any sense. Um, we do understand to some extent when the process goes wrong. And I would say that that's probably where I as a gastroenterologist often get involved because when the, the balance of the bacteria or the, the balance of the microorganisms um, is lost, it typically creates diseases or the disease creates a loss is kind of the chicken or the egg. Uh, but when there is a loss, there is often some problem that goes along with it. And that's where you're probably going to become a see a gastroenterologist because you have this complaint, you have this problem, this is what's going on. And as of right now, we do understand that there are times where we can actually treat it specifically at the, the microbiome level. Um, so there are times, for example, where I have patients who have unfortunately been exposed to a lot of antibiotics out of necessity, sometimes not out of necessity, uh, but they've wrecked their digestive tract. And that's the primary problem. So that's why they're having all the issues that they're having. And that's what I now have to address. Or it might be somebody who hasn't even had, you know, a prolonged exposure to antibiotics, but they may have Crohn's disease or they might have multiple surgeries that they've had on their, on their bellies, removing parts of their intestines. And as you can imagine, that leaves you with a deficit at some point. Um, and so, you know, other reasons that you can develop abnormalities with the microbiome. And then what do you do about that? So, you know, again, it's definitely something that as gastroenterologists, we touch on all the time. I feel like I'm having talks with my patients about their microbiome, not necessarily using these terms, but talking about the concept every day. So it's definitely something that's very important. And um, I think I would encourage anybody to learn more about it. But I just also say, at least for right now, when it comes to you know, extrapolating the, the data that we have to how you modify your diet, take it with a grain of salt, okay? But there's, you're not doing yourself any harm. So you're not really doing yourself any harm by you know, choosing to eat asparagus and not eat you know, oranges or something like that. Um, and you might find a difference, you might not. But I, I would say for sure, one of the things that we know is that certain food groups basically foster a more healthy microbiome environment, okay? And I think that that's really what the results are trying to get at, is trying to help you to understand specifically based on what you're made up of, what things might help to promote the most healthy environment. Um, and that's the part that, as I said, it's probably going to end up evolving over time. It's kind of like if any of you have done like the Ancestry.com or 23andMe and things, kind of, things like that. Like if you've ever noticed your profile uh, changes over time. And it's just because as they get more data, they understand it better. They can be a little bit more specific about what, you know, where you hail from. Uh, I suspect that's probably what's going to end up happening too with uh, some of these kits. But the concept is, is, you know, it's solid. Like it's there. It's something that we're already dealing with as doctors. Uh, it's more so the, the implications of these findings that I think is still in its infancy. How often do you um, deal with 
this, and this is something new that I'm hearing more uh, frequently, uh, this leaky gut uh, situation. Mm -hmm. So I think that the term gets thrown around a little bit more um, than is, then there isn't that actual problem, but we definitely see it a lot. Um, and again, there are certain things that can create it, but basically what happens is that that microbiome creates a protective barrier within your digestive tract. Mm -hmm. And basically if it is disrupted in any way, shape or form, then all the things, the, the nutrients and the goodness and everything that's supposed to be maintained in the gut starts to fall apart. And typically with that, you start developing symptoms. Um, and so that's the idea of, you know, sort of leaky gut is that, you know, things that should be sort of, you know, maintained inside and, and used properly and, 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 um, and I guess processed, if you will, um, don't get a chance to, to have that happen. Um, but, you know, I think that any sort of stomach upset sometimes is, is attributed to leaky gut. Uh, and it actually is kind of a, a a distinct entity uh, that's not always responsible for your symptoms. There's a lot of overlap in gastroenterology. And I think that this is truth be told a part of why this issue is a little bit difficult to tease out because there are people who have true, uh, you know, alterations or, or, you know, susceptibilities with their microbiome. Okay. But who also have other medical problems. And unfortunately, sometimes those things are competing and it makes it a little bit difficult to tease out how much is contributing to one particular thing. And I think, as I understand some of the science behind this, that's the same issue that a lot of scientists are having too, as far as, okay, even if we understand this about your microbiome, which we're made up of, again, how much of it is actually contributing to one particular thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so going along with that, what do you recommend, and I would say generally um, for someone to maintain their gut health, like the foods that they should be eating in moderation or, you know, in excess to maintain that gut health. Yeah. I think that it's really always come down to fiber. Um, and so fruits and vegetables. Um, and then, you know, that depending on what you read, you, you'll hear anywhere from like 25 to 40 grams of fiber a day, uh, which can actually be pretty difficult to do, but uh, fiber really is what it is. It boils down to fiber and uh, low fat, low red meat. Um, when you look at you know various populations across the globe who have diets that kind of center around those those principles, mm -hmm. they tend to be folks who have overall healthier microbiomes. And basically, by that, what I mean is diverse organisms. So you know, lots of different kinds of organisms. That has been found to be the thing that, that is, is most healthy. Um, and so individuals who tend to have those diets, I think tend to achieve that goal better. And you know, there's even some, some evidence to suggest that they have overall less health problems. And the Western diet has been criticized forever mm -hmm. because it's kind of the opposite. And so it's you know, high in red meat, high in fat and low in fiber. Um, and so if I were to tell anybody you know, something to do to try to achieve more balance, it would be, do just that, achieve balance, because you kind of have to look at what you're eating. Is it balanced? If it's skewed, you know, in any one particular direction, then that's probably the first thing you need to correct. And specifically with an effort of trying to increase your fiber intake. Um, and then, you know, again, with the, the, the guidelines that you've been given with the test that you took, 
you know, it tends to be guiding you as to what kinds of fibers, you know, you may want to consider to, you know, having or not uh, in an effort to promote health within your gut based on your specific makeup. But the idea in general tends to be fiber. Gotcha. Question. Can I add on that real quick? Yeah. So the fibers that we're, that we're talking about, Metamucil, the powder fiber, does that count as a fiber or should it come from actual food? Ah, depends on who you talk to. Um, <laughs> so I'll tell you this, I use it, um, but I'm using it more so medicinally. Um, but, you know, it really kind of boils down to water-soluble, water-insoluble fiber. Um, both can actually be very helpful for the gut um, and different fruits and vegetables and different things will have different kinds of fiber in it. Um, I would say that I don't personally know of anything that shows any harm with taking those fiber supplements. And as I said, I use them all the time. But I think that, to be honest with you, one of the main reasons I have to rely on them is because I think that it's hard for people to find time and ways to actually get the dietary fiber. Uh, because case in point, I think if you're aiming for like, was it like 25 to 30 grams of fiber? That's like eight bananas, if I remember correctly, like five apples. I mean, it's like, it's a lot of stuff that you have to eat uh, just to be able to achieve that. And so again, just because I think it's hard to be able to get that much fiber just with what you're eating, people find that adding fiber supplements tends to help. And as I said, I don't personally know of any, any, anything documenting that those are harmful, um, but I think it might be a situation of it's probably more preferred to get dietary fiber because it's, it's natural. Yeah. Well, that real quick, um, the whole, the last couple of years, the biggest, one of the biggest things I've been hearing about is the whole probiotic. And I heard you talk about antibiotics, um, depleting the system and doing that. <coughs> is that for every, is that a general standard for everybody or is that person specific as well? And everybody needs to be careful with probiotics and what they take and the amount they take. Yeah. So it's interesting because I use probiotics a lot too, but I think again, it's, it's, uh, it's the, the perspective because I'm typically dealing with people who have actual problems with the digestive tract. But I think a more common question, which is perhaps what you're getting at is, should I just be doing this in general prophylactically? Should I be doing this just to kind of maintain my, my, my digestive health? And, you know, I tend not to recommend that to people. Uh, and it's really just because to be honest with you, it's sometimes hard to be able to, to, to demonstrate the change if you don't have symptoms to begin with. So if you're overall feeling pretty well, then it's hard to be able to know if the probiotics actually doing something for you if you don't have anything to compare it to versus people who are having sort of digestive distress. You know, they go on a probiotic and they notice that they're feeling better. Obviously, you have something to compare it to to be able to know, you know, this made a difference. Um, and it's interesting, too, because the AGA, which is the American Gastroenterological Association, one of our, our governing societies, uh, they actually just released a paper that is now kind of discouraging broad use of probiotics, not because they're harmful, but more so because we just don't have enough evidence to suggest that they do good and, and or do no harm outside of certain situations. So it actually kind of speaks to this question of, if I don't really have any problems, should I be using probiotics as a way to maintain or improve my digestive health? Maybe not, at least according to some of the, some of the new emerging data. 
Um, but they were very specific to say that there are certain medical conditions that do benefit from probiotics. So, you know, what I generally tell people is that overall, they're not harmful, okay? There may be some more data coming down the pipeline to eventually tell us differently than that. But in general, I don't, I don't believe them to be harmful. But I wouldn't necessarily say that they are required either, depending on where, you know, what perspective you're coming from. So what I'm hearing is all these years, Jamie Lee Curtis was lying to us on the, on the commercials. <laughs> How you doing Jamie Lee like that, man? Between <laughs> <laughs> her and um, the dude from the reverse mortgage. That's too funny. Losing faith in our generation. That's too funny. I mean, you know, listen, um, I have people who love themselves in Activia yogurt. And again, I, I, don't, I don't really have a... I don't have a, a personal issue with it, uh, but you know, it's. I think it's one of those things where there are some things that I would clearly steer you away from based on our, our medical understanding of that's probably not good. There are some other things where I think we're kind of indifferent. And I think that probiotics probably tend to be that category for most of us or for many of us, myself, I'll speak for myself, um, that I don't really think they do you any harm, but depending on the, the situ situation, it may not be doing you much good either. So we can just bust regular yogurt and be fine. Well, honestly, <laughs> a lot of yogurts have probiotics in them anyway. Activia just kind of got that that extra um, boost. It's got that yeah, extra you know, right? it's, yeah. it's kind of marketed. It's kind of marketed that way. But you know, yogurts have traditionally been a source of probiotics anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, you can you can have your yogurt if it's not disagreeing with you. It's not causing you any problems. And there we go. <laughs> Praise Jamie Lee. Your body will tell you if it's not good for you. Trust me. <laughs> Man, we live by the yogurt. Well, some of us in my household live by the yogurt. That's one of the things that actually helped me keep my son um, regular because he's had some run-ins with digestive issues and constipation, um, mm -hmm. even when he was a, a baby. And that was one. That was always my go-to. Give him a little thing of yogurt, clean him right out or whatnot. So we 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 keep it on deck, and it works. Um, works great and it tastes better than the uh the prune juice <laughs> yeah that's for sure so you know again i think that's one of those things where you're not you know really doing any harm um i will say and you know i don't know this is sort of more theoretical um mm -hmm. i haven't seen anything very compelling um about this but you know yeah again you have to kind of take everything um you know uh Take everything with a grain of salt, I guess, is, is what I want to say. Um, people who are immunocompromised, okay, so people who might be, you know, on chemotherapy, people who might have, like, you know, full-blown AIDS from HIV, you know, those kinds of people, theoretically, they might be uh, more at risk in taking probiotics because it is bacteria. Um, and so, you know, and most people with sort of a normal, robust immune system, you know, it's not going to end up causing any problems. But, you know, there probably is at least some concern or some reason for concern in certain people. So, again, this is where it's always important to, you know, make decisions like this, especially long-term decisions uh, with your doctor who really kind of understands you specifically to be able to know what your individual risks may be. Because, you know, I, as I said, I, I you know, uh, often am referring to probiotics and I'm often telling people they really don't do any harm. And, you know, again... I think in overwhelming uh, an overwhelming uh, number of cases, that's true. But that's at least one situation where theoretically there might be some concern. And so that's why, again, if you're going to end up kind of going on any path of let me take this 
and maybe just do this indefinitely, probably makes sense to run it by a doc too, just to make sure that that makes sense for you. Good doc, so I have a question. Um, I've been looking more into the vegan vegetarian lifestyle and really substituting a lot of those products into my daily, uh, my daily diet. Um, but my concern is the amount of options that we currently have or vegans currently have that are processed. Um, long time ago, if you were vegan vegetarian, you know, it's, it's pretty much rabbit food and you get creative in the kitchen. But now you got, you know, the meats that the texture and everything is there. You can get meatless chicken, shrimp, and I've run the gamut. And it's just like, wow, what are they putting in this stuff to make it taste like the meat, but not really be the meat? And if it's not natural, but kind of natural, it's plant-based, but they got to do all of this other, you know, technical genetically modifying of it. Am I really doing myself a service right now? So what's your take on that? Uh, I think that it's, it's wise to be cautious. Um, because you're right, you know, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, certain foods in the vegan and vegetarian lifestyle, they just don't have the texture or taste of meat. And I think that that has been unfortunately a downfall sometimes uh, for those cuisines where they sort of market themselves that way uh, in order to be able to attract a more diverse crowd. And sometimes they, you know, let themselves down. So, you know, it just kind of, it is what it is. And you sort of make that choice for whatever reason you make that choice and it's perfectly fine. But it does make you wonder, you know, what's in these, these foods and what, what am I consuming? Because I think that there is a thought that just because uh, I'm eating, you know, as a vegetarian or eating as a vegan, that I'm automatically more healthy. And we obviously realize that you can still be eating a lot of things that aren't meat, but that still aren't healthy either. Um, so, you know, this is where I would say, if that's a specific concern for you, then it might actually make sense to, you know, try to find a nutritionist who can help you to sort through those things. Um, and not only be able to sort through it to make sure that you're, you know, kind of getting really, I think, the most robust, healthy food that you can get from your diet, but that you're meeting your specific nutritional goals. And so, you know, this is um, an interesting uh, departure from gastroenterology, because as much as you know, the digestive tract is obviously fueled by food. Um, we actually have people within medicine who specifically specialize in food and they're nutritionists. And so this is where I think a lot of gastroenterologists tend to defer to our nutrition colleagues to be able to help with some of these specific things um, because we're sort of more the mechanics for the system uh, wherein the nutritionists kind of work sometimes very often as a matter of fact in concert with us. Um, unfortunately, they can be hard to find. And so, you know, medical nutritionists tend to work just in the hospitals. And a lot of times, if you are not a patient, you're just kind of trying to, you know, be health conscious, uh, diet conscious, those nutritionists are really hard to come by. And so a lot of other nutritionists might work or be affiliated with gyms or things like that, which is good. But again, depending on what you're trying to get out of a nutritionist, that might, even, might not even be the right person for you either. Uh, and very often... I have found it's difficult to find a nutritionist who's covered by your insurance if you're trying to go that route. So just some ideas of limitations you might run into, but by all means still worth at least pursuing in order to be able to get information about that stuff specifically. Gotcha, gotcha. So I'm gonna change directions a little bit, get back into your field of expertise. Uh, I was doing some research and uh, was looking at uh, colorectal cancer. 
mm-hmm. and was kind of shocked at what I saw, especially when it comes to the cancers that impact us as African-American men. Uh, mm-hmm. It's third on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, only uh, It's third to lung cancer um, and then prostate cancer, which is by far in the lead by like a thousand percent. Um, but this colorectal cancer and in our incidence rate is like one and a half times higher than any other ethnicity as black black African-American men, black men. Um, So I'm really interested in how we can help ourselves uh, get out of that statistic. I mean, our death rate is 20% higher than any other ethnicity as well. So it's, it's really alarming. So what, in your field of ex- or your expertise, uh, can we do to kind of help drive down that number? Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, you're right. You've kind of, you know, thrown those numbers out there and they're startling. Uh, and this has been the case for a while that uh, African-Americans have the highest incidence of colon cancer in this country uh, compared to any other ethnic group. Um, and unfortunately, our outcomes once we have colon cancer are, are not good. And and trail behind everyone else's. And so fortunately though, since the 2000s, that the numbers have been decreasing across the board. So actually everyone's incidence of colon cancer has been decreasing. And this is really largely attributed to increased screening for colon cancer. Um, And so, you know, I think to be honest with you, to answer your question, that's really what we have to hone in on. We have to emphasize the importance of screening in order to be able to be preventative for colon cancer because it is the uh, third most common cancer. It is the second most common cause of cancer-related death, uh, and yet it's preventable. But you know, to be honest with you, I think it's preventable in a way that is very off-putting because it tends to boil down to colonoscopies. Um, and you know, so as to not mince words, that's a camera up the butt, okay? And that is something that people feel very uncomfortable with. And unfortunately, it's created a barrier for a very long time in being able to get people screened so that we can stay ahead of the problem. So I think that's really what it is. It's education about how we go about doing this. But it's also, um, you know, helping people to feel comfortable with that idea. So to sort of springboard from that, <clears throat> the, the education of the, of the actual screening test. So a screening test is any test in medicine that we use to be able to look for something that's typically not creating symptoms. And that's probably one of the bigger issues with colon cancer. Colon cancer comes from colon polyps, which are growths inside of the colon, colon being the large intestine. And those growths <clears throat> almost never cause symptoms, certainly not in the beginning. And yet they're what can give rise to colon cancer. So our goal is to be able to find them, get rid of them so they never turn into cancer. But if they don't create symptoms, how do you know where you're supposed to look? And so what we've learned, generally speaking, is that polyps become more common the older we are. And that's actually why if any of you have heard, you know, you're supposed to get a colonoscopy when you're 50. That's where that idea comes from. Uh, So, you know, typically that's when we start looking. However, there has been a recommendation for quite some time that we should be doing colonoscopies at the age of 45 in African-Americans. And I expand that really to just black people because I don't have a, a true sense that when those recommendations were made that you know they were cognizant of the diversity of blacks. Uh, so I don't necessarily want people to fall into the idea of it's specifically African-Americans, I just black people. Um, 
we can argue more, you know, perhaps even later, there clearly is a difference between cancer incidence and say South African blacks versus African-American blacks. But again, in this country, one of the things they've also shown is that once you move to the United States and adopt some of our, our um, you know, customs, including our diet, your, your risks change. So black people in this country have uh, been advised to start doing colonoscopies at the age of 45 with the idea in mind of what you've said, that colon cancer tends to be more common in us uh, with poorer outcomes. So I will tell you that uh, unfortunately, some insurance companies won't cover it at 45 just because you're black. Um, but you should by all means still try to find out if, one, if your insurance company will. And you do that by having the conversation. So you sit down with your primary care doctor or depending on how your insurance works, if you don't need a referral to a specialist, you sit down with your gastroenterologist and you talk about, hey, I'm 45. I think, you know, I've heard that I need to be doing this. Let's talk about it. For what it's worth in the background, there have been, there's been some odds and talks about changing the age from 50 to 45 for everybody. But at least for right now, uh, it's still 50 for everybody and it's 45 for African-Americans. And so what we do is uh, we, we use a camera and yes, we do go you know, through your bottom. We go into your anus and rectum and we go all the way through your large intestine. But you are asleep when this is being done. You actually are asleep before we even start. So you do not feel anything. You are not aware of anything. You are completely out, okay? And it's actually about 10 to 20 minutes. It's very quick and it's a procedure. And so different than a surgery in the sense that we don't need to cut you open to get into your colon. We're going through a path that already exists, which is why we go the way that we do. But as a result of that, when you wake up, there's no scar there, you know, there's no healing. You just wake up after the procedure. The camera's already out. And because it is a camera, we have seen inside while we were in there. But more importantly, not only have we seen, if there are polyps, we can remove them while we're in there. That way, by the time you wake up, not only have we found polyps, we have gotten rid of them and they're gone. And that is the difference between a colonoscopy and all these other tests, which might sound a little bit more attractive because they're not a camera up the butt. <laughs> so Cologuard, FIT. Uh, virtual colonoscopies, you know, things like this, you know, so these are some of the other tests that we have that for full disclosure also screen for polyps, okay, or screen for uh, basically cancers or precancers of the colon, but none of them can actually get rid of what they see. Colonoscopies can find and get rid of what they see. So truth be told, they tend to be the most efficient use of your time, but they are invasive. Uh, and I think that for a lot of people, and if I'm to be honest, for black men in particular, I think it's the idea of getting past that notion of what you're doing to me. Okay. Um, to be completely honest with you, probably the, th the thing that's the hardest about a colonoscopy is getting ready for it. Uh, besides the, the, you know, getting past the mental idea of what's being done is actually getting ready for it because you have to clean everything out before we can go inside. And that's a laxative that you typically drink the night before your procedure. And so it's not days and days before, it's usually the night before. And at least in the past, it was awful. Like you used to have to drink a gallon of what tasted like ocean water, okay? So you've heard about the terrible prep. That's what people were talking about. That's how people have been running away from us. But honestly, the preps have evolved. They're much easier to get through, a lot less liquid, overall better tasting. But it is necessary so that we can see once we go inside. Mm -hmm. And so 
Uh, that tends to be the hardest part. You're also fasting, basically just on liquids uh, for some period before the procedure. But after the procedure's over, you're done, you can eat and drink again, okay? And, you know, as far as the sedation is concerned, one of the things I often tell my patients, I have had people wake up arguing with me because they don't even believe we did it. And they're like, how did I end up in a recovery room? It's just like, you know, you did you start yet? And so the sedation can be very effective. And so for the folks who are, you know, kind of squeamish about what's happening and, you know, I don't want to feel anything, I don't want to see anything, you know, honestly, you generally are fully up and unaware, which allows you to be comfortable while we do something to help to maintain your health. It's like you said, it's the most efficient because you're going to get in, you're going to get everything and then you, you kind of get out instead of going and doing this virtual test that you're going to end up coming to see you later on to actually get the colonoscopy and get the polyps removed if there are any and everything. So you may as well get it all done in one shot. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's invasive, but it doesn't sound like there are too many uh, effects. So, I mean, we gave you the statistics, man, listening. Um, it's very alarming. And you can go see Dr. Ben down in Woodbridge, Virginia. He'll definitely take care of you. <laughs> We're going to charter a bus up. <laughs> you know it's funny, I've been offered, I've been offered cold mouth speech to all my friends, and it's like they, they always just turn that down. I, I think ah, it's a, what is that? for free. I got about 12 years. So, but y'all would be happy to know that, you know, even here in Virginia, I have had an opportunity to scope a few Seminoles, and mm -hmm. I have always tattooed the U. And so, yes. yeah, <laughs> they can't even see it, they don't even know it's there, but I know it's there. So, <laughs> Awesome, I, have two, I have two questions that I, I want to ask, and, and this is me from, from UM back in the day uh, being told, and this is currently. So uh, what are your thoughts on colon hydrotherapy? First question. First of all, what, what is that? I'm about to say, let's first go to exactly <laughs> what is colon hydrotherapy. Uh, I'll let the doctor explain that. <laughs> Shoot some water up your butt. <laughs> they got that in Europe, don't they? Ain't that on the toilet they in do, Europe? They do it here. Yeah. That's a good day. That's, that's a good day. <laughs> so, so the question would be: Is is that is that something you think should be done? Um, not regularly, but you know, every once in a while, a couple years, uh, or no? Okay. Uh, did you want to ask the second question too, or you want to? Yes. So uh, while at UM, I was uh, I was informed by a fellow fellow pa uh, podcast mate who shall remain nameless uh, that magnesium citrate was oh, not here. Drink. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, yes, yeah, so magnesium citrate was the other thing for for uh, releasing uh, or cleansing into a collaborative kind of mindset. So mm -hmm. that's that's the the two questions I have. Well, well, I should say magnesium citrate and Sprite to to help it help it bubble and then release. So there's your two questions. So the magnesium citrate. The question about that is, is what that when you is should it good do? for you? Is something you should do? I know they have a CVS and Walgreens. Is it what is it? Yeah. Okay. So um, you can kind of lump the two together. Um, in general, I don't recommend colonics, which it, or hydrotherapy, colon hydrotherapy. Um, I don't tend to recommend those on a regular basis, okay? So for those who aren't familiar, basically this is where you can go to a location uh, and they basically flush your colon out with, uh, you know, obviously water, hence the hydro part, but usually there are some other things that are in it uh, with the idea of sort of cleaning out your colon. 
And it's based on this concept that you should clean out your colon for your overall colon's health. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I, I want to be cautious in saying this and even some of the other things that I've said, because, you know, it, it's certainly not my agenda to sort of poo-poo, no pun intended, uh, natural things, okay? I think that, you know, far too often, unfortunately, doctors have criminalized themselves or been criminalized as like, you know, I don't believe in natural, and that, that's not true at all. Um, but you also have to understand that we are biased and that that's not even a part of our training, typically. Um, so we are coming from a certain perspective. But, uh, you know, I at least try to be open-minded enough to embrace some of these other things and have frequently recommended, you know, sort of non-traditional things to help take care of my patients. But with that being said, <clears throat> the real issue that I have with colonics or hydrotherapy, especially involving, you know, those electrolytes and, you know, other things that they'll use to clean out the colon, is that done regularly, I think that it can really end up causing more problems for you, okay? Um, and so, for example, the preps that we use for colonoscopies have a lot of, it's the similar concept. It's a purge. It's just cleaning out the colon. But when we do that, uh, especially once we're screening for, for colon cancers, that can be done once every 10 years, once every five years, something like that. And I find that people who are doing, you know, uh, hydrotherapy, they're doing it much, much more often. And I think that that's where you run the risk of, you know, potentially having problems of, you know, delivering huge loads of medicines and things to the colon that you probably shouldn't be using. Um, but I can give you even a more specific example of where I have seen that what we think we're doing is not right. So I think that a lot of people, again, think that you have to sort of clean out the colon for it to function, that, you know, in order for it to be healthy. And interestingly enough, when this, the colon doesn't have stool, it actually will sometimes develop problems. So there uh, are situations where people will actually have surgery where their small intestine and their large intestine are separated, okay, for whatever reason. And the small intestine is then brought up to the skin and empties into a bag. So if you've ever known anybody who like poops into a bag or, you know, has that, it's called a colostomy. And so this happens for a variety of reasons. But interestingly, during that time, over time, the colon is no longer receiving stool. It's going into the bag. And interestingly, the colon can actually develop colitis or inflammation of the colon, whereby it kind of swells and gets, you know, sort of angry and red and, and even bleeds a little bit on the inside. And in this specific situation where somebody develops this colitis and they're detached, the way that you fix it, you reconnect them. You reconnect them, now stool is able to go through the colon, it heals. And so it just kind of illustrates this idea that despite the fact that we think that we're supposed to clean out the colon in order to keep it healthy, there are other situations that have actually shown us that the colon actually needs stool. And so it's supposed to have stool. Um, it, that's actually part of its job is to help to store stool until it's socially acceptable to get rid of it. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> the difference, and this gets to your second question, is there are times where you are holding on to it in such a way that is making you miserable. You're constipated, okay? You're FOS. And so now it's like, you know, what do I do about this? Not because it's dangerous, not because it's, um, you know, uh, something I need to be worried about, but because it makes you miserable and uncomfortable. That's, to be honest with you, why laxatives exist. 
you know, so we use them to be able to help people to go when their bodies aren't going well on their own. And so this is where you might use something like magnesium citrate, okay, mixed with whatever you choose to mix it with. But it's really not meant to be something you're using on a regular basis. And so if you're in a situation where you are regularly backed up or constipated, that's when you need to come and see somebody like me in order to try to figure out why is this happening and how better should we go about doing it. So in general, you know, I don't think that either of those things were really meant to be used on a regular basis. And I've also found that some people will use the hydrotherapy for weight loss. Uh, and obviously, what's the point of that? It's just like, I mean, that's gonna be a temporary thing. You're just temporarily losing some of the stool that was in there, but your colon's gonna reaccumulate stool. Quite frankly, there's a better way to lose weight. <laughs> it's just the harder way. Uh, so, you know, that those are some of the things I've at least run into with that scenario. And my answer is usually that, you know, it's not quite what you think as far as, you know, this idea, this notion of health of the colon, nor is it, you know, the wisest way to lose weight if that's why you're doing it. And none of these things are probably meant to be used on a regular basis. Just, just clear, make clear information. It's not used regular basis. I wanted to know because that was a conversation I've had. Um, right. And I have had the hydroponic thing a long time ago with, with the wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, the... You guys hold hands? No. <laughs> the better question is, did you like it? <laughs> it, was, it was nice it was, to have music and candles. I mean, it was good. It was the experience. It was really light afterwards. I will say that. But the fact that you don't have to go to the bathroom for like two days is weird. Like, you don't have to go because there's nothing. There's weird. nothing. There's nothing. Yeah. So wow. Just like, I think I should be going. But so that was. <laughs> um, but other than that, yeah, it was, it was, it was fine. Yeah, it was fine. That's awesome. Um, I, I got a question. Yeah. Um, squatty Potty. <laughs> yeah run it the hell is that what are we coming up with this first story? off first yeah. off i will say um world if you guys have not had the opportunity to watch the squatty potty commercial yeah. I, I think it is uh um a phenomenon yeah. of of marketing genius yeah. like what yeah. they've done to create um an understanding of what the squatty potty is first and foremost is just i mean it's hats off kudos but yes please brother ben give us your thoughts on the squatty potty i guess you can go ahead and, and give people a little rundown of exactly what Squatty Potty is. Squatty Potty, I'm, I'm all for it. Cause you know, again, it's not really doing you any harm. Um, but basically all it is, is that it's a, it's a, a stool that you use. And uh, again, it's a stool that you use in the bathroom basically to help you to get into a better position to allow everything to come out. Um, and so, you know, it's something that can be really ideal for people who struggle going to the bathroom. Uh, straining and all of that, you know, it just literally changes your position so that you can get it out better. Uh, so again, I mean, you really can't, it's, it's, I think it's, I think it's awesome for the people for whom it works because you really can't, you know, you're not doing yourself any harm. Awesome. So, I, I, quick story on that one. I bought it as a gag gift for one of those white elephant things for work. That's like, a good idea. I've never thought about that. Oh, when I tell you they were fighting over this thing, oh, yeah. Hey, it is life changing. It, came down, to, it yes. came down to it's something that everybody wanted but would never go buy themselves. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. all started wanting it but would never go buy it in a store themselves for themselves. Yeah. Well, I, I, I will say I'm an avid um, squatty potty uh, uh, user and, and uh, I, I'd get some stock in that bad boy because I will say. Once you watch a yeah, I mean, once you watch a commercial, you're already extremely intrigued. But I guess a little bit of the way that they present the commercial makes you feel like it is potentially a gag gift. 
But once you have the opportunity to, to fully engage and understand what's going on, and when he says stool, he don't mean the stool coming out of your body. He means a stool like a stool, a, a chair, a yeah. way to help you raise your legs and get yourself into a squatted position that then helps you um, handle business more efficiently. And it definitely, um, as funny as it is, it definitely is a, a game changer. Because you do not – I had no clue – that that was such a big hindrance on our our bathroom usage in the way that they break it down and explain it is, is pretty good. And the unicorn is the commercial? Yo, it's awesome. Yeah, you have to watch it. Like, it's going – yes, it's, it's – like I said, they uh, they without a doubt should win some type of marketing award because well, the way that they present – this To put the commercial in here. I'm I, I'll, I'll probably – yeah, I'll throw, I'll throw in the link by at a minimum, but if not, I'll definitely – because the commercial's long. It's like a good five minutes. Yeah. It's an amazing five minutes, but it's great. <laughs> uh, the one I'm looking at says 52 seconds, but I don't know. Wow. Learned so much today. Yes, <laughs> uh, Learned so much today. Thank you, Dr. Ben, man. Um, sure, it's sure. been a pleasure having you on. All right, got to another one. Yeah. Well, before we go, when should we go see you? Like, at, at, at the age of 40, right now, I just turned 40, um, when should we come see you? When, when is it? We have our normal checkups, which we as Black men do more often, our yearly checkups. But when do we come see you? When do we make time to say, hey, I need to go see my gastroenterologist? Okay. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying so, to my head to say it properly. So, yeah, <laughs> so uh, 45, I think, is when you should start having a conversation. I should also throw in there <clears throat> family history influences how soon you might need a colonoscopy. And so um, basically, if there are any first-degree relatives in your family, what that means is like mom, dad, brothers, sisters, children. So any of those individuals who've been affected by colon cancer at a young age, which we define to be like less than 60, if any of those people have been affected by colon cancer, then you might be at risk for developing colon cancer at a young age also. So current guidelines, current societies actually recommend if you have that family scenario, then your first colonoscopy should actually be at 40 or 10 years before your relative is diagnosed, whichever comes earlier. So to kind of put that into context, let's say that your mother was diagnosed with colon cancer when she was 40, okay? So current guidelines will say, well, it's your mom. She was younger than 60. So you need your first colonoscopy at 40 or 10 years before she was diagnosed, whichever comes earlier. So 10 years before 40 is 30. So actually that's a case where 30 would trump 40, okay? Um, but, you know, let's say that your same scenario mother, but let's just make her, I don't know, um, 55. So, you know, 10 from that would be 45, okay? But 40 comes before that. So it's either 40, or 10 years before your family member was diagnosed, whichever comes earlier. Um, so if any of you happen to have that kind of a situation, then you might need to be coming to see me even sooner. But otherwise, I would say for sure, start the conversation at 45. And at least what we're in the habit of doing, and I think other gastroenterologists are probably you know, kind of you know, dealing with this also, is I said, sometimes insurance companies don't approve it. Um, so at least what we do is we always do a pre-approval. So, you know, we reach out to your insurance in order to find out, hopefully ahead of time, is this covered? Because many insurance companies will cover prevention tests 100%. So this would be considered to be a prevention test. The mm -hmm. question is, 
do they accept it as a prevention test for you at the age of 45 when right now they're accepting it as a prevention test for everybody at the age of 50? Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, yeah, Dr. Ben, man, I, like I was saying, um, definitely appreciate you coming on the show um, and dropping all the knowledge on yeah. us and getting us right as far as our gut check is concerned. Um, before we start wrapping this thing up, though, there is one more question I want to ask, and it's, it has to do with you as a black man in medicine. Um, and your experience and specifically what you would leave some fair haired youth or some that are interested in medicine, possibly gastroenterology, um, what you would leave with them so that they can, you know, continue on and, you know, achieve their, uh, their goals, wishes and endeavors. So, you know, I think that being self-assured is really helpful. And it's because <clears throat> even in 2020, I think that we're still experiencing a lot of firsts within the black community. And so, you know, there are still people who are the first in their families to graduate from high school or the first in their families to, you know, go to college. Um, and so, you know, we're still celebrating those milestones and yet the higher you go, the more alone you will probably become. And I think that it's really important to be self-assured because it's lonely up there. And I think that unfortunately, that's a part of why uh, some of our, our black youth are struggling and some of why, a part of why some of our black youth aren't succeeding because they're looking around and they're the only ones that are there. And, you know, I think I kind of had this understanding, <clears throat> but it was one thing to understand it sort of theoretically, intellectually, an entirely different thing to experience it in, in actuality. Because as I mentioned to you, when I got to medical school, I was one of two black men in my entire class of 161 people. And the other guy, cool, he's an orthopedic surgeon now, um, buddy of mine, we look absolutely nothing alike. And yet we had people confusing us all the time. So I'd have classmates who come to be, his name is Damani. They'd be like, yo, Damani. I'm like, no, I'm the other one. And like, and, and the same thing would happen to him. And, you know, the other thing is that I can remember, you know, medical school is hard. You know, I think we kind of assume that. But it is definitely hard and there are a lot of layers to why it's hard for me one of the problems was it was the first time that i was really sort of away from my from my village and i was in new york um i didn't have any family up there and i'm in medical school with all these people who have been high achievers their entire life uh i don't have my you know my support in my community like i said and one of the things that i didn't realize by the time I got to medical school was that I was burnt out. Uh, and, you know, if I, if I may be so bold, the fellas here can, can attest. When I was in college, I was busy. Like, I mean, I was, I was involved in a lot of stuff. I was doing a lot of stuff and I liked it that way. But by the time I got to medical school, out of necessity, you just kind of have to focus on school. And I think to some extent I got bored, but another part of it was that, um, you know, I, I, I found it to be, very difficult because of all those other things that were going on. And that's where self-assuredness is, is necessary because in a class of 161 people where you're one or two black guys, if you have a bad day, everybody notices it. And so if I was stressed out or I'm like missing home and I'm, I'm doing whatever else, you know, I'm burnt out, whatever it might be. And that happens to be the day that the professor calls me on, calls on me in class and I don't know the answer, you know, at least in my mind, what's happening? He doesn't know anything. 
And they, that's the day they, they don't know anything. That would be the day that they remember the wet black guy I was. It's like, oh, that, that's Ben right there. He didn't remember anything. And, you know, he probably got in here on affirmative action. And, you know, it, it's those kinds of things that can really turn you down. So uh, it gets worse because when I left medical school and I went to residency, I did residency at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, which is one of the main teaching hospitals of Harvard. And so I go from being one of two black guys in my med school class to being the only black guy in the entire program. And so once again, you know, it's like, it's, you're really under the spotlight and you have to be confident uh, because I think that just the normal stresses of being in those environments, which quite frankly, everyone is dealing with to some extent. Unfortunately, I think it just tends to stand out more in you. So what I would tell people is if this is something you wanna do, then, you know, you don't need to be cocky, but you need, you need to just get to a point where you're not second guessing yourself, especially as you move, as you move forward. And I think that one of the things that can also be helpful for that is, like I said before, representation. So this is why it is so important for us to be doing the things that we're doing. You know, even if it's just, you know, being, you know, smart, being, you know, present, you know, being available to, you know, black youth who are, you know, interested in doing all the things that we're doing, you know, and to be able to say, hey, there's somebody else that did it. Because that was really helpful for me in the days where I was like, man, I don't think I'm gonna be able to make this, you know? And to be able to turn around and be like, oh, but he did, you know, it was like, he did. And, uh, and I, I look back on people who did this long before I did, and I feel for them because they had no one. You know, back in the 50s, back in the 30s, back, you know, whenever, they had no one, you know? I, there may have only been one here or there, but it was still one that, you know, made the difference for me to be able to see somebody did it. And so, so I, uh, I can too. So, you know, I think um, take your lumps and bumps as you go along, because, you know, those lumps and bumps that might happen in high school, those, you know, humbling moments that might happen in college will probably prepare you for your ascent. And I think that it just boils down to being self-assured and, you know, being willing to, um, you know, reach out to other people for help when you need it. Wow. Well, I, I was going to jump into my corner that I do every week, but uh, you kind of took that information and put that ball perfectly there. So I don't have much to add to that. But what I will say is that you mentioned earlier that they are still first. They're still the first of. And it's okay if you're still the first of something. Um, there's many fields out here that still need one of us to do this process. Um, so don't be afraid to take that path if no one's taken it before. It will yep. be hard, but you have support in your village and the people around you. And don't ever forget to reach back for support to move forward to that next step. Um, that is how we're going to grow. And then when you get there, you're that first. Mm-hmm. Now, someone can now look at you as I can make that too. Mm-hmm. So break that barrier, take that chance, go out there. Um, and if you're not the first and you're a second or third, reach out and find that person who was yeah. for you. Even Absolutely, yeah. Not your school, maybe it be a different school or different, different some, somewhere else. There is a, for instance, there's a doctor in that phase that you had that. Go see that doctor, be not a patient, and talk to them. Hey, I'm in this school. I'm looking for support. Can I come just follow you or shadow you or something? Build relationships that way. Um, it's not just about monetary. You can build relationships and build things and pull from each other by your actions. 
So you can do more than that than just spending money and, and reading books. Go out there, talk, interact, and be so that you can grow as well and continue to bring that that train along with you. Keep tracking the train up because you got to get more um, up top. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, you know, one of the things that I really valued about my family was that they kind of understood that because I'm the first doctor in my family. So it's not that I could turn to anyone in my family to say, hey, how do I do this? But even though there was no one in my family who could do that for me, my family still, you know, rallied together behind me to say, you know what, we're going to support you however we can, even if it's with love or food or prayers or whatever else it might be. And, you know, even fast forwarding now, you know, I'm married to a doctor, she's a surgeon, and between the two of us, we have crazy schedules and had the audacity to have twins. And so, <laughs> you know, when we had the twins and, you know, it was spontaneous, just blessing, you know, that's just how it happened. Um, you know, so we didn't plan for it per se. You know, we were like, how on earth are we gonna do this? And had the way that we did it, our mothers actually left their respective homes in New York and Florida moved in with us and stayed with us for a year nice. in order to help to take care of the kids so that we could sleep at night and mm -hmm. so that we could still be on call and so we could still go to the hospital and, you know, still take care of our patients. And so that village is what has helped us to be able to stand and still be able to do what it is we do. And so that's a way that you can still support people, even if you can't necessarily speak to what they're going through yourself. And I think that that's actually something for us to keep in mind also. You know, as much as, you know, we can absolutely do, absolutely do outreach programs and pipeline programs and things like that, they're critically important. But just look around your own family and friends and realize that, you know, somebody may be already doing their ascent and you have, you know, nothing about it. <laughs> that's not even, that's not your ministry. But, you know, you could still support them by being there, by loving on them, you know, by just however you can help them. Um, because that honestly made all the difference uh, when my family couldn't necessarily help me when I was studying organic chemistry at night, you know, to understand the concepts better or to know how to, you know, um, do well in the hospital when I was on rotations, but they absolutely knew how to support me in all the other ways. Man, that's awesome, man. Uh... Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in and shining that light, man. Like it, it shines so bright with you, man. I'm just proud to uh, have you come on and share the, those words and all that information and keep that message going. Um, before we uh, wrap this thing up, Dr. Ben, is there any way uh, people, social media and or otherwise can get in contact with you or come see you if they're in the greater DMV area? Yeah. Um, so we can give the contact information for, our office so they can you know certainly set up an appointment if they if they want to we're on facebook um we're on twitter also uh, that's the uh, associates in gastroenterology yeah, so associates in gastroenterology and then um yeah if anybody wants to kind of you know reach me personally then probably email would be the best so um i can you want me to just Say it or do you guys say it? Shout it out. You got it, bro. You got the mic. All right. All right. So then let's do, you know what? I have a couple of different email addresses and spam is ridiculous. So I'm going to give, so um, let's do Dr. So Dr. Ben Young, GI, all one word. Okay. So Dr. Ben Young, GI at gmail.com. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. You want to get that uh, colonoscopy done, get your checkups, 
Hit up Dr. Ben. He's going to take good care of you. Warming up the hands for you. Who I'm, who I'm getting ready to catch up to from college. Let me think about what y'all did. Let me think. Let me think. Oh, man. In Florida State, but, you paid twice but this is much. the this is the problem. Though. Okay, I a lot. This is the one thing. Our network runs so deep that we have no idea where everybody's at. Like I, like I said, Ben, we talked for like 15 minutes before. We were trying to get you on for the live cast that day, and schedules didn't work out. Again, yeah. this is way more deep than we can go in that 15, 20 minutes, right? Yeah, um, no doubt. But this is why, I, again, proud to everybody on this podcast, but there's tons of people that we haven't tapped in yet. The talent that we had around us and surrounded by us, there's a reason why a lot of us kept going and kept pushing, right? So whatever we need to do to support you in the process, whatever um, anybody else out there that we need to support this, because our people are tops of their game. It's hands down. There ain't no question about it. Yeah. Like they, they, they achieve the most, and they're going to be successful, and they're not afraid to give back. So yeah. I, I would to say thank you for that and just keep pushing. Again, we're proud of you. Um, coming from uh, we are all the days around the U- UBS office, the question that they Bill was famous for. Um, uh, but again, we should have got man, we should have got some of them stories in, man. <laughs> many classes just said we would have these heated debates, like in, in, the, in the UBS office, mm-hmm. just silly stuff. And it's just, but I mean, honestly, it was also very thought provoking things. It and it would be kind of thing where, like, you know, there would be times where we would literally have been there for like two or three hours, and people have come in. You know, uh-huh. join the conversation, laugh, laugh the, the conversation. conversation. <laughs> like it was, it was fantastic. But it's like I'm, I'm right there with Brian. It's like, you know, I think back on some of the people that I met and the paths, you know, that I, you know, whose paths I crossed with, some of whom I still keep in touch with now. And it's like I'm just tremendously proud of, you know, what everybody has done because I realized that, you know, we all came from sort of different you know, paths, like we, you know, different, different introductions into college. And again, some of us were achieving our firsts right then and there. Right. And yet, and still, I feel like people have just catapulted into just tremendous things. So, you know, I appreciate the accolades. And honestly, I shower those back to all of y'all too, for doing what you're doing in your respective fields. This, I mean, all of this, I think is just fantastic. There it is. There it is. Preservation, man. We got to get you in before we get up out of here, bro. Woo, woo. Um, we here, we live. Um, let's see. Never discredit your gut instinct. You're not paranoid. Your body can pick up on bad vibrations. If something deep inside of you says something is not right about a person or situation, trust it. Um, world, it is what it is. A lot of people don't take the time and opportunity to recognize and understand when their gut is telling them no, this situation or especially this person is, is not worth any more of your time or efforts. Uh, you need to be more cognizant and understanding of what's going on in your world and definitely be more apparent and aware of what your gut is telling you, especially in sticky situations, but also in situations in general. Make sure that you are, uh, you know, focusing on understanding that your gut sometimes tells you what your head has not been able to evaluate. So trust your gut instinct. Make sure you're moving with it, jabbing with it and, and, and getting out there and, and staying focused but recognizing when something doesn't feel right, that you have the strength and power to go ahead and, and recognize it and, and, and make that change in your life. And that's what is fresh evasion. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. This has been Gut Check Part 1. 
uh, two part series. Pat Quinn, you're gonna be up next. Uh, he did it. Get... He's coming. He's coming. Pat <laughs> doing big things. Get give him my regards, please. Yeah, most yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. Uh, remember, you can get this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, YouTube, Vimeo, uh, each and every week. And you can follow us on IG and Facebook at Thirteenth Floor, please. But that is it, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Ben, thank you again for joining us here on the Thirteenth Floor, where the furniture isn't always the best, but the views are always. Welcome to where the furniture isn't always the best, but the views they are amazing.